Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Father God, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we pray that wherever we are, whenever we're listening, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, you will be with us. You will continue to strengthen us with your truth, with your love, with your constant faithful goodness. Today and always, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you once again this morning, and as I think most of you will be aware by now, we're midway through our series going through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the great things about these chapters in Matthews 5 to 7 is that Jesus covers so much ground in this sermon. You can have a 10-week series, but it's not just repetition. He touches on so many different areas of life under the overall theme of living God's way, living as God's people who've been liberated, set free to live in his kingdom. Because with Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. This is what he's preaching. The kingdom of God is here and you can be a part of it. And you can experience a totally different way of living. A life that is radically different and in completely opposite to anything you've heard or known before. But this is the way of life that God has designed for men to walk. This is his kingdom way. This is the Jesus way. This is his template for all humanity. And to live this way, which you can only do when his Holy Spirit is living in you and supernaturally empowering you, to live this way is to know life in all its fullness as he intends for you because he is good. And we can be people who really know how to live. Not because we are anything, but because we've heard it from the lips of the Savior himself who came that we may have life. And because we've submitted to it and to him and we've embraced it because he's helping us grow into it one day at a time, little by little, we're being changed and enabled to live life his way. Amen. Our God is good. And last week, Paul spoke from chapter 6 about storing up treasure in heaven. Not on earth, Jesus says, where it's bound to perish, but in heaven where it's indestructible. And the danger, he says, the real risk of storing up treasure on earth rather than in heaven is that your heart will follow your treasure choices. So if you invest in earthly treasure, then earthly things rather than the things of eternity will also capture your heart. And that will leave you poor indeed. How is a man better off, Jesus asks in Mark 8. What possible good is it for him if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And in Luke 12, we read of the man who gets rich. All his investments turn up trumps. He builds great warehouses for all his stuff. And he has plans to build even bigger and even better. And then God says to him, you fool. You absolute idiot. You've got it completely wrong. 
Because tonight, you're going to die. And who then is going to get all your stuff? What a total waste of your life. And this, Jesus says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich as regards God. And then he says in Luke's gospel, therefore, so, because of this, and in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 6, as we saw last week, he says, you cannot devote yourself to serving up, storing up treasure in both places. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, and let's hear what he says immediately after this. Because after this, therefore, in both Gospels, we then read this identical passage, which is our text this morning, starting from verse 25 of Matthew 6. So let's hear what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you, Will. Therefore, he says, three times, do not worry. Now, we'll come back to that therefore. Just remember it for now. Do not worry about your life or about your body. Do not worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Do not worry about tomorrow. Now, on any level, this is good advice, isn't it? Firstly, as Jesus says, worrying doesn't help. It doesn't actually achieve anything. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? Verse 27, or as some versions have it, add a foot to his height. Can you do that by worrying? Of course you can't. Worrying doesn't actually get you anywhere. Secondly, he says in verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Again, this is good advice. If each day has enough trouble of its own, and if worrying can't help, then why on earth should you waste today, spend today, worrying about tomorrow's trouble? You may as well just enjoy today and face the trouble tomorrow when it comes. Don't spoil today with it as well if you don't actually gain anything by worrying about it. It's good advice. But of course, the advice itself isn't enough, is it? We all worry, at least at times, don't we? At least about some things. And some of us would freely admit, I'm just a worrier. That's who I am. Always have been. I can't help it. That's just me. But even if that is not us, there are still times, aren't there? 
I know the anxiety when I've got something difficult coming up that I don't want to face and deal with. Or when I don't know what I'm going to say. Or when time is running out. Or when the thing that stresses me is getting closer and the, the pressure and the tension just start to settle on me just here. And of course there's a level of anxiety in response to stress that's normal and even beneficial. It gets us doing things. It gets us preparing properly, thinking ahead in ways that we might not otherwise do, which can be very helpful. But there's another level of worry that can become actually harmful, not just in an emotional way, but also in a physical way. Worrying, you see, it releases stress hormones in the body, which can cause physical reactions, such as, in alphabetical order, according to WebMD, Difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, muscle tension, nausea, nervous energy, rapid breathing, shortness of breath, sweating, trembling, and twitching. And more seriously, the fuel that the fight or flight hormones produce in the blood, if it's not used in physical activity, that fuel can actually eventually cause problems with the immune system, the digestive system, muscle tension, memory loss, coronary disease, and heart attacks. But of course, these are extreme cases. I don't want to worry you. But even leaving that stuff aside, I'm guessing that those of us who do worry, which is all of us to some extent, I'm guessing we would all say, I wish I didn't worry. I'd love to be able not to worry. I wish I didn't have to. Well, Jesus says you don't have to. He tells us not to worry. And he wouldn't tell us that if it wasn't possible. And his answer to the problem of worry, his antidote to this condition that at best can rob us of our joy and at worst can completely cripple us, his antidote is one thing. It's truth. Truth. He says to the Jews who believed in him in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's a different context, but it's the same principle here. The truth is what will set you free from worry if you know it and if you then believe it. And that is Jesus' remedy. Now let's just be clear about one thing. Before we go any further, when Jesus says, do not worry about this or that, he doesn't mean you shouldn't make plans. He doesn't mean you shouldn't make proper provision. He doesn't mean get to Sunday and find there's no Sunday dinner because you didn't go shopping on Saturday. Do not worry doesn't mean don't bother about it. And do not worry doesn't mean don't be concerned about things that do matter. It doesn't mean don't study hard for the exams that are coming up. Don't take them seriously. They're only my A-levels. It doesn't mean don't go and see a pension, a financial advisor about your pension situation. It doesn't mean just wait till you get to 67 and then you'll find out how you're placed. No, that's not his point at all. The word he uses for don't worry literally means don't be pulled apart. Don't go to pieces. Don't let worry get a grip on you. Don't let it master you and pull you in its direction. Don't let it churn you up, scramble your thinking. Don't get in a stew. Don't get your knickers in a twist. I'm going beyond the meaning of the Greek now. Do not fret and do not be anxious in any way that is inconsistent with being at peace in the love of God, which is his desire for you. That's what he means. And the way not to worry. 
the means to achieve that freedom and to obey the command of these verses. Because that's actually what it is. It's a command here. It's not just a recommendation or a piece of good advice. The way to do it isn't any number of clever self-help techniques. It's simply truth. Let's look at the text. Verse 25, he says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? So he's talking about things that matter here, things that are necessary. Food, drink, clothes, the necessities of life, as we might say, or as we might sing if we were a certain Disney cartoon bear. But necessary, though they certainly are, don't worry about them, Jesus says. Life is about more than just the food we eat and what we drink. The body and what we do with it is about more than just having clothes to wear. So though these things matter, don't worry about them. Why? Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? See, the birds, Jesus says, they can't help themselves. They can't do the work of producing crops for food. They can't take the sensible precaution of storing up food in barns so that it's ready when they need it. They're helpless in the sense that they're at the mercy of whatever nature provides. They have no other source of supply, no other means of provision. And yet, Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds them. It's not actually Mother Nature, Jesus says. Baloo got that bit wrong. It's not old Mother Nature's recipes. It's your heavenly Father's. And it's not simply natural processes. It's your heavenly Father's deliberate act that feeds the birds. Psalm 145, 15. The eyes of all look to you. You give them food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Yes, of course, he does it through his creation. But it's not a past act. He hasn't just set up creation and now he sits back to let it do its stuff. It's personal. He's actively at work through his creation today, sustaining all things by his powerful word, as Hebrews says. He makes the sun rise. He calls forth the stars. It's all present tense in scripture. And it's him that does it all. He feeds the birds. It's personal. And he does it out of his goodness. He satisfies their desires. And if he does it for them, Jesus says, are you not much more valuable than they? Do you think he won't do it all the more for you? Verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Now most translations have the word lilies, the lilies of the field rather than simply flowers. And the Greek word is usually understood to mean a particular white lily, lilium candidum. And here's a picture of that white lily growing wild in Israel on the slopes of Mount Carmel. Maybe these are indeed the flowers that Jesus meant growing around him on the mountainside as he spoke. Just as in the earlier verse, he could no doubt wave a hand at the birds flying overhead. 
You see, it's an ordinary but beautiful flower. But it doesn't labor or spin to make its own clothing. It can't do that. It's all provided freely by God. And I think that instinctively, as we look at that flower, we'd probably all understand exactly what Jesus meant. We'd agree, not even the best-dressed man or woman amongst us, not even on our very finest day, we don't even come close to the natural beauty of flowers such as this. And so again, he makes the same point. If that is how he clothes the grass of the field, it's a more general word now, it's all the grasses and flowers that grow in the field that are here one day and the flowers grow and they look lovely in the sun, but the next day the whole lot is cut down and burned as stubble as the field is cleared. If that is how God himself clothes the grass which is here for just a day or two and is actually worthless, it's going to get thrown away and burned, if that's the care and the beauty he lavishes upon those lilies, tiny insignificant things in his creation though they are, will he not much more clothe you? And here these two things, both times, both with the birds and with the lilies, it's he that is providing, Jesus says. His creation is showing you both his hand and his heart at work in the example it shows us. This is God the Father at work providing. That's why the analogy Jesus uses is valid. Secondly, both times Jesus said, he won't just do more in his provision for you than he does for the birds and the lilies, but he'll do much more, exceeding abundantly more, we might say, in the language of Ephesians 3. He will feed you. He will clothe you much more. And you might think, and I might think, Lord, can it really be so simple? Aren't you being a bit naive, Jesus? Don't you realize life is actually a bit more complicated than that? Especially modern life, brackets, which after all, you don't really know very much about, do you, Jesus? I mean, it was a bit simpler in first century Palestine than 21st century Amersham, so I'm not really surprised if you don't quite understand how it is for me trying to make ends meet, looking for a new job while COVID is here. But if you think he hasn't sat where you sit, actually it's the other way around. You haven't sat at his father's side. You haven't been with him when he lovingly birthed creation. You haven't seen how father and son together have crafted the parameters of this finely tuned universe so that it can sustain life. You haven't shared his father's heartbeat for the humans he has created so that he can lavish his love upon them. You haven't seen firsthand the care with which he actively and individually provides for them as they look to him. Jesus has. Jesus knows. Now, I can't resist Fizzy's new hamster when he sits and looks up at me because I'm just a teeny bit like God. There's just a little something of God in me. Do you really think God can't and won't provide for you if you look up to him and ask? It's not Jesus who doesn't understand. It's us. And Jesus says to us in verse 31, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The pagans, those outside of God's covenant blessing, they chase after these things. 
In Luke, the Greek says, all the peoples of the world run after them. Well, of course they do. They have no one else to trust, no one to depend on. They don't know the abundant love and the goodness of God who still blesses them in creation even though they don't know or care two peens about him. They have to worry. They've got no choice. But you, Jesus says, don't you be like them? You whose situation is so very different, don't you worry saying, what should we eat, what should we drink, what should we wear? You don't need to because your heavenly father knows you need these things. He said that once before in the sermon. You remember when he was talking about prayer. He said, don't pray like the pagans do, babbling on and on and on, hoping they might be heard. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And this is the truth that will set you free from worry if you let it. You have a heavenly father who sees your situation, who knows what you need, and who will provide for you. That's his promise to you. That's the promise of Jesus. No ifs, no buts. Except just one but. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, I think I have misunderstood this verse all my life. I've always thought of it as a kind of trade-off. If you put me first, God says, then I'll look after you. If you devote yourself to the things that matter to me, if you seek to build my kingdom, if you work hard at church, if you give generously to the gift day, as well as your tithe, of course, if you volunteer for the kids' work and all the rest, then I'll give you all the things you need. You prioritize my interests, and in return, I'll prioritize yours. Now, that's close to the truth in some respects, but it's also very wrong because it misunderstands the heart of God. Yes, it's true that if we're to experience the fullness and the richness of life that God intends for us, if we're to receive all the good things that he longs to pour into our lives, to meet our basic needs and so much more, then yes, we do need to die to ourselves. We do need to give up all our rights except the right to do the will of God. He does need to be Lord of every part of our lives and we do need to seek his kingdom first with all of our hearts but that's not for his advantage so that he's the beneficiary. It's not for his good. It's for ours. God isn't saying, I want more of your effort, more of your energy, more of your money, more of your time. He's not a taking God who needs anything from us for his own sake. He's the great lover. He's the supreme giver. And so Jesus says, seek first his kingdom. Because that is how you will find life. Seek his kingdom so that you might receive more of it yourself. God isn't greedy to take from you. He's greedy, if that's the word. He's hungry to give to you. And this, this is the crux of the whole passage. This is the therefore that we started with 15 minutes ago, which I said we'd come back to. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, do not worry about the things you genuinely do need. Because if you do, if you worry about them, they will steal your focus and your attention. 
And if your preoccupation is on even the legitimate question of how am I going to feed my kids next week? Or where is my next job coming from in this really tough marketplace? If that's your big worry, then you cannot at the same time be seeking first the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God, it means the blessing of his loving reign in our lives. It means the closeness of his presence and the joy that comes with it. It means his strength in times of trial. It means his wisdom when your own wisdom has long ago run out. It means the privilege of being in fellowship with his people as your own family. And yes, it means his provision in our lives. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. That's one aspect of it. And if we are consumed with worry about our practical needs, that's just another way of serving money, of bowing down before the money God. And if that is where our focus is, if we allow that to drive us, then we will miss out on experiencing all the blessings of his kingdom. And the worst of it is, we will have lost so much and yet we'll have nothing in return because worry doesn't help us one iota. So Jesus says, don't do it that way. You have a heavenly father who sees you and who loves you far more than you could ever imagine. You couldn't even begin to imagine the start of it, Jesus says, except that he's revealed it to you a little bit by his spirit. You don't know how precious you are to him, but I do. So don't miss out. Don't miss out by worrying when you really don't need to. Don't worry yourself to death about the little things, money and your physical needs, at the expense of the big thing that is worth more than life itself, his kingdom. Because if you seek first his kingdom, then all these things will be given to you as well. There's the promise. There's the glorious conclusion of verse 33. You will have the kingdom, the big thing, and you will also have flung wide open the door of the kingdom's treasure house. You'll have the genuine, practical, down-to-earth things met as well. Your father will not fail to meet your needs, that he knows all about anyway before you ask him, because you are so very much more precious to him than all the birds and all the flowers in all the world put together. You see, the kingdom is a given, literally, if you seek it. Luke follows up this verse in his gospel with the words, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's been pleased to do it. He loves to do it. To give his kingdom blessings away freely to those who truly seek to live his kingdom way, to embrace his kingdom rule in their lives, to seek his righteousness. And it's implied here in Matthew 2, seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, as well as the kingdom which he will most certainly give to you. That's the implication. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven, as we shall sing soon. The rich he sends empty away, sang Mary, but those who hunger and thirst for his kingdom righteousness, wow, they shall be filled. They shall be filled with good things. That's the big thing. But also the other thing, the smaller thing, that nevertheless matters so much to us and can take up so much of our thinking and nervous energy, our genuine, practical, financial, real life, daily needs. Yep, 
You do get those thrown in as well, Jesus says in verse 33. They may not be the big thing, but they are still a real thing. God knows that. And yes, he'll take care of them too. Phew. What a relief, you might say. And Jesus says, exactly. It's meant to be a relief. That's why I don't want you to worry. There's a saying, isn't there? Why buy a dog and bark yourself? If you buy a dog, let him do the barking. He's good at it, you're not. What's the point of spending all that money on a dog? Then you have to feed him and then there's all those vet's bills. What's the point of that? And then you trying to do the barking. That would be mad. It would be barking mad. And if I can say this without being flippant, Jesus might say, why buy a dog and bark yourself? What's the point of having a wonderful, all-powerful, loving, heavenly Father who is committed to you with all his heart and then doing all the worrying yourself when he has promised to provide for you? And yet, that's so often exactly what we do, isn't it? And the reason why we do is a little phrase we haven't mentioned yet this morning. It comes in verse 30. Will he not much more clothe you, Jesus says, you of little faith? That's the problem, you see. We don't trust him. We don't actually believe him. We of little faith. We don't think he really means it. Or he means it for other people who are more spiritual than me, but not for me. Or he means it in some spiritual sense, yes, I don't doubt that, but not in a real life sense that will actually put food on my table or help me get a job or see me through my crisis. But if Jesus' medicine, if his antidote for worry is going to work, then the one thing we have to do is to swallow it, not leave it sitting there in its bottle unopened on the table. If his truth that the Father loves us, that he'll feed us and clothe us and so much more. If that truth is to do its work and set us free from worry, the one thing we have to do is believe it. To take it into ourselves, to absorb it into our system so that his medicine can do its work. Now let me broaden things out here, away from this specific context here in Matthew 6 of God looking after us by providing for our material needs us trusting him so we don't worry in that particular area of our lives. Because the principles of God's faithfulness and his care and of our trust in him and the freedom from worry as a result, those principles are transferable into other areas of our lives. Some of us have financial challenges. Some of us need a job. Some of us have serious health issues. Others of, others of us worry about our relationships, our marriages, our kids, our futures, our old age. This COVID world, the post-COVID world, the list could go on and on. We all, I'm sure, have plenty of things we could quite legitimately worry about. For some of us, it might be the ever-changing stuff of life, now one thing and then another thing to take its place. For others, it might be one great, huge, glaring thing right in front of us, filling our thoughts so that we can barely forget about it for a single minute. But the principle is exactly the same, no matter how serious the situation. We can worry 
as if we are alone in this universe. Or we can trust knowing that God, our Father, is at our side. And we have to choose. But left to ourselves, we often choose wrong. And the result is at best worry and at worst a suffocating fear that grips us tight to the point of crushing us completely. I've quoted before from this book, The Shack, where the representation of Jesus, the Jesus figure says to the central character whose name is Mac, Jesus says, Mac, do you realize that your imagination of the future, which is almost always dictated by fear of some kind, your imagination of the future rarely, if ever, pictures me there with you. Mac stopped and thought, it was true. He spent a lot of time fretting and worrying about the future. And in his imaginations, it was usually pretty gloomy and depressing, if not outright horrible. And Jesus was also correct in saying that in Mac's imaginations of the future, God was always absent. Now that is many of us, I suspect. That's the way we instinctively worry in our heads about what the future might be like, making no allowance in our thinking for the God who is Lord of the past and of the present and the future, making no allowance for the fact that he will be with us when we get there. And whatever our situation today, however horrible and dire what you are facing might be, which I do not want to make light of one bit. Nevertheless, God says the same to us today as he said to his people in Isaiah 49, his people who thought they'd been forsaken and forgotten. God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, even if you could get your head around that and imagine such an impossible thing, though she may forget, says God, I will not forget you. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, God has said, never, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now either we are simply wrong about the God we know and love, and he's not really there at all, or he's an uncaring liar. Either that, or else, however hard it may seem to believe it in your situation, his word is true, his love is constant, and he is with you, full of compassion, mighty to save, and able to provide right where you are today. And there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground in scripture. So we have to choose which of those two options we are going to believe. And when we choose through gritted teeth, through tears of pain and fear, that we're going to trust him no matter what, then he will help us. And as we drink that medicine of truth, his spirit will apply it to our spirit to begin to set us free from the grip of worry and of fear. And we of little faith gradually become we have a little bit more faith and a bit more and a bit more. But Christian, we do have to choose. And then we have to choose to leave the worry with him and not to pick it up again and not to turn it round and round in our mind. And we have to choose to fill our minds and feed our spirits with his truth and read his word and memorize it and repeat it to ourselves over and over. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
And in times of crisis, we have to enlist the help of others. Ask them to pray for us. Be honest with them about our fears. Enable them to speak back to us truth. To keep pointing us to Jesus, to the promises, to the goodness of God our Father. Now, I know it is not always easy. It's wonderful when God answers us, when he provides for us, when he meets our needs quickly, completely, in a way that's just right. Oh, thank you so much, Lord, we say. Sometimes he does that, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we have to wait a long time. Sometimes it seems we get right to the very end of our rope. God knows he holds us safe. So often he uses our circumstances to grow us, to stretch us in his love and in his wisdom for our own good so that we come out the other side knowing him better and more confident in our God than we've ever been before. And sometimes, let's be honest, the fact is that we don't see all the answers and it doesn't seem to make any sense. But still, we trust him. And maybe we say as Peter did when it got hard for him, Lord, I don't understand, I don't get it one bit, but where else can I go? Because I do know this, you have the words of eternal life. So I cling to you because you are my only hope. And sometimes that itself is the only answer and also the best answer. We don't understand, but that's because we haven't yet got to the end of the story. But of this, we can be certain. We can stake our lives on the truth of the words of Jesus Christ, whose words will never pass away, even though heaven and earth will pass away. Do not worry, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. Whatever you truly need will be given to you as well, coming straight from the heart of your heavenly Father, whose love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me and you. He who did not spare his own son, Paul writes, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, both in this earthly life and even more importantly, in the eternal life that we have already begun? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that your truth will set us free today. The truth that we are precious to you. That you are faithful. That you will never forsake us. That you will provide. Father God, help us today. Whatever our situation, you who are familiar with all our weaknesses and our frailty, help us not to worry, but to trust you. And Lord, as we now choose to place ourselves and our fears into your hands, Lord, we pray, come by your spirit. Come and meet with us. Come now, Lord, write your truth on our hearts afresh. Increase our little faith that it may become greater faith as you speak to us by your spirit, as you draw near, that we will know that we are eternally safe in the arms of our living, loving God, and that we need not fear. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.